Stop touching your face. Go wash your hands. Welcome to Inquiring Buys, the podcast for the curious queer. I am Sarah, your host. And I gotta say, I woke up with Big God by Florence and the Machine stuck on my head. And that song has me lit. Or as lit as you can be while stuck at home. Anyway. So in the last episode, we talked about the difference between uh, radical feminism and revolutionary feminism. And about how words are important. And I kind of wanted to use that to segue into uh, a discussion about gender and how gender is made up. Because it is. Which is not to say that it is not important. It is very important to a lot of people. And there's, there's nothing wrong with gender being important to people. But it's important to know that there's no biological basis for gender. And gender is a social construct. Again, that's not to diminish the importance it has for some people, but that's important to know, especially when you're talking about queer politics. So the first thing that is important to establish is that gender and sex as words are not interchangeable. Uh, We do that a lot, especially I think in the US, that we say gender when we mean sex and sex when we mean gender. And it's, it's misleading. So when people talk about sex, they're talking about biology. When people talk about gender, they are talking about a set of expectations and and sometimes responsibilities and presentational things that have nothing to do with uh, biology. And you can see that because if you look from culture to culture, uh, and even within the same culture from time period to time period, the things that we consider, consider important aspects of gender change. Uh, it's really easy to see that when you look at men's fashion. Men's fashion today is sort of becoming a little bit more fun, but especially if you look at what, like, the the typical straight cis man wears, you know, it's very, like, there's not a lot of color, there's no frills, it's very, like, austere looking. But if you go back in time, that has not always been the case. If you had more fabric, it was a sign of wealth, it was a sign that you didn't have to work very hard, that you were nobility. Men wore powdered wigs, they wore hose, they wore like brocade and silk and ruffles and ruffs. And the fact that that is not considered masculine today is a sign that what we consider to be gender is not a stagnant, static thing. So to go back to biological sex, you would think that that would be a very cut and dry, simple thing for us to say. And a lot of people do. They say like, this means man and this means woman and never the twain shall meet. The thing is, our concept of biological sex has always kind of been, how do I say this, really behind what the research says. So let me, let me, let me back up a really long way back to ancient Greece. So in ancient Greece, when all of those like great philosopher scientist dudes, I want to say Socrates, but I don't actually think it was Socrates, were looking into the differences between men and women, they said, okay, so the female body is basically an underdeveloped form of the male body. And that was the the one sex, 
It's not method. Whatever. So basically they thought that there was one sex, that sex was men and you were either a fully developed man and you had a penis and testicles, or you were an underdeveloped man and all of your genitals were still on the inside. And people thought that for a really long time. And that's kind of where you get that idea that women are physically weaker than men because women are simply malformed men. And as scientific knowledge grew, especially like when you started getting into the Victorian era, uh, then people realized that what made men and women different was not that women were underdeveloped men, although they were still weaker. It was what was on the inside. So that's where you get the origin of the term hysteria, uh, hysterectomy, like that stuff is, it has to do with um, the uterus. And that's like a really fascinating time in the history of how we understand sex. It's, it's weird. But anyway, so the, the difference that they were really pushing there was that the difference wasn't on the outside, it was on the inside. And it was all about the organs. And like I said, very weird, interesting time in uh, the history of sex. That was when the first vibrator was invented. And if if you don't know about that, like you should, and you have access to a computer where no one's going to look at you weird for looking it up, it is very interesting. Basically, uh, doctors were like, well, like women are moody and hysterical because they, I think it was like they have, you have to like milk the uterus or something like that. So they would use vibrators for medical, like they would, it was a medical procedure. It was not for fun. Uh, that came later. And the first vibrators were, there was like water involved in them. So there was like electricity and water. It did not seem like a great combo. But yeah, so it's very interesting that this like eponymous sex toy came about from a very repressed society. And not for fun. That, again, like I said, that came later. But basically, it was not like a fun thing. It was just like, your husband can't get you off. You have anxiety. I'm going to send you to the doctor. He's going to get you off, but it's not going to be like, it'll feel good, but it's not going to be fun. And then uh, as we move even closer to our present day with medical history, um, you start to see a shift from like, it's all about the organs that you have to it's all about the hormones that you have. It's more about your genetics. And even the genetics thing is, is fairly new. Um, so, so we're still kind of in the hormone phase. Like these are the hormones that make you male or female. It's these little chains of chemicals. And, you know, again, we still have that idea that there are two sexes that, and I think I just used gender instead of sex. So it's very like pervasive. I'll probably catch myself doing that a couple more times. But the idea that it's chemicals that affect what your sex is. Uh, but there's still that idea that there's only two sexes, that there is male and female. You know, people are starting to look more into like genetics. It is these chromosomes that decide what your sex is. But even that isn't really the full picture. And it's really, in and, and one of the things that when you start studying this, that's really interesting is how long these schools of thought, as it were, stayed within the public conscious, not even the public conscious, like the actual scientific communities, because nobody was questioning them. It was just, this is what it is. And I think that's really fascinating because when you look at other avenues of scientific inquiry, that is not how they operate. Like scientists are always questioning, uh, how does space work? How do stars work? How does our knowledge of time and light and dark matter work? And, and biology is this area that is not questioned. 
And to me, that's really interesting. There is a, I believe she's a biologist. I don't think she's a zoologist, but she is a scientist. Her name is Dr. Joan Roughgarden. She has some really interesting TED Talks. You should definitely check them out. Uh, but she, that's kind of her whole thing is that she goes into a study, a scientific like observation. She does a lot of like stuff with animals. So she'll observe seahorses and there's this type of bird that she observed. So fascinating but I'm not here to take away, like do her TED Talks. Just go watch them. You won't regret it. But what she does is she like, she questions the very foundation of what she's trying to observe. So instead of going in assuming like, yes, I will see um, behaviors of male animals and female animals. She says, why have we created this binary? Because we can see in the natural world that this is not correct. Like this doesn't fit what we're seeing. We're forcing these things into categories. And again, like the the one that comes to mind really quickly is seahorses. And I feel like we all kind of know that story that um, male seahorses, male, quote unquote, seahorses are the ones that carry the, the eggs that gestate them and then give birth to them. But like, why have we decided that that means that that creature is female? And we do that a lot. We try and fit things into these neat little boxes when it comes to sex but not necessarily in other aspects of science. If something doesn't fit in another aspect of science, it's like, well, what did we do wrong? How do we question this? How do we change how we know about things? And I'm not a science person, so maybe there's a lot more tension and maybe it's a lot harder than I realize when you're talking about things like the nature of matter, but I don't know. So Joan Roughgarden is, is questioning the very foundations of that tradition of scientific inquiry. And it's incredibly fascinating because once you take away that idea that things must be in these boxes of male or female, you can see a lot of places where it doesn't work. It simply doesn't make sense for how to describe what we're seeing. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we continue to talk about sex and gender, is that the foundations of our knowledge, the foundations of our understandings of sex are in some ways inherently flawed, simply because we assume that there is a binary. Uh, Susan Faludi. Um, I, I think I said this earlier, I'm sitting next to my bookshelf and I keep looking at it, like assuming these books that I've read for class are going to magically appear here when I don't own half of them. <laughs> I've read them digitally. Speaking of that, uh, if you're a little bored, uh, definitely check out your your local library's website. They probably have digital stuff for you to do, like books to check out or music or movies. Maybe even online classes. This has been a PSA. But going back to the idea of biological sex, um, Susan Faludi has a book about this. Um, and one of the things she talks about is that even the idea that like XX and XY mean specific things is not the case. Um, you And you can see this with intersex individuals, people who in the past would have been called like hermaphrodites. I don't believe that that's like an acceptable term or if it is, it's at least it's if it's not, if it is acceptable, it's not widely used anymore. And and one of the things that uh, let me make sure that Susan actually. OK, so it's definitely not Susan Faludi and I'm going to have to log fucking blackboard, figure out who the hell I'm talking about. Oh, there we go. Okay, 
It took me way too long to do that, but the book that I am looking for is by Anne Fausto Sterling. It is called Sexing the Body, and it is really good. It's about gender politics and, well, the subheading is gender politics and the construction of sexuality. But yeah, and one of the, like, the very, like, the opening, is that the page number? Is it technically? Yes, the opening pages, the opening chapter is about the Olympian, Castor Semia. But yeah, anyway, um, she, I believe Anne Fausto Sterling uses she, her pronouns, uh, talks about, uh, talks about how the concept of biological sex is also a social construct that like there are biological differences in people but a they aren't that big and b they are not as cut and dry as um many people would like to believe so yeah so that is definitely um a very enlightening read uh it it talks i mean it's really it makes it very real it makes it very present. It's not something that, I don't know, like people in a different place deal with. It's something that's happening everywhere. And uh, there's a lot of really detrimental things that happen with this narrowing of biological sex into two categories, into a binary. And uh, some of that is that people who are born intersex, they are born with genitals that don't immediately declare like, yes, I am a typical boy or I am a typical girl. Uh, Often have doctors decide for them Sometimes they don't even tell the parents. Sometimes they do when the parents decide. And they are raised whatever way the parents decide. Their genitals are, I hesitate to use the term mutilated because it's a strong word, but I feel like it's accurate in this case. And it's very traumatic. Like people will find out there's a, there's a lot of horror stories. Um, and I don't really want to, I don't want this to be a horror story. We can talk about that later if you want. It's very traumatic for people and it's, and it takes away their choice. It takes away bodily autonomy and it is altogether very uh, creepy. I was trying to come up with a word that was like buzzword that would appeal to like a conservative audience if you were talking about this to like your uncle. Not anytime soon, obviously social distancing. But anyway, okay, so we've talked about um, biological sex being much more complicated than, than anyone would like to admit. So we're going to move on to gender, which I feel like people understand is a little bit more complicated. Like we talk about gender more than we talk about biological sex. We talk about gender roles and gender expectations and, you know, gendered products. Like why do women's razors cost more than men's razors? Because they're pink? Bullshit. And like definitely want to talk about the pink tax at some point. And because I have a whole rant about tampons and pads being considered a luxury uh, and how that inordinately disadvantages disadvantages women and girls in poverty and especially teenage girls in poverty and teenage girls who live on reservations who cannot afford pads and tampons and who have to miss school for several weeks out of the year anyway white people suck colonialism still exists so that actually is kind of relevant to the, where we're going with gender because a lot of indigenous peoples, a lot of aboriginal peoples, like First Nations, they do have this concept already in their societies that there is more than one gender. Some some cultures call them two-spirit people. Um, there are other names, um, I think, in a lot of anthropological research in like the 60s and 70s and maybe even the 80s. The French term berdache, B-E-R-D-A-C-H-E, I don't know how you actually pronounce that in French, was used, um, but that term is kind of falling out of vogue because it is a term that was given to these people and it is not a term that they themselves used. So the concept of multiple genders, like more than two, is not new. 
Like that has existed throughout time. Um, have we always used the term trans? Have we always used the gender? You know what? Let's back up for a second because I, to move forward in this conversation, we're going to need to talk about the definition of trans. We all know I have a huge crush on Susan Stryker and you're just going to have to deal with that. But in her book, Transgender History, it's the very first page. She has a really great definition of what it means to be trans or what transness is. She defines it as the movement across a socially imposed boundary away from an unchosen starting place rather than any particular destination or mode of transition. She says that that best characterizes the concept of transgender transgender that she's going to develop in the rest of the book. And, you know, that's I think that's really it's a great definition. It's very open. There's a lot of room in that definition. And as people have started talking about transness and trans issues and the concept of gender, the definition of tr- there's when you see it written, it'll be trans and then an asterisk. And what that signifies is not just someone who is transitioning or in the process of transitioning, but it encompasses different gender identities. It encompasses like what we would traditionally think of as trans, like someone who is transitioning from male to female or female to male. But it also includes people who are agender who don't feel that any gender identity fits. Um, It includes people who are genderqueer who flow along a gender spectrum that maybe sometimes they feel more masculine and sometimes they feel more feminine. And that also is a similar definition to gender fluid. The distinction is important for people, but uh, the concept is very similar. Um, And there are lots of other gender identities that I'm sure I am leaving out. But like for for our purposes today, um, talking about transness, I will try to, to differentiate if I'm talking about like the specific transitioning from male to female or female to male. But in general, when I'm using it right now, I'm going to be talking about trans as like a very broad term that it's anybody who doesn't fit into a masculine or feminine gender identity. Or if they do, they don't fit there all the time. So we talked a little bit earlier about how gender is a made up concept um, and that it changes from society to society. No, I was talking about two spirit people. So, so the erasure of transness or the uh, implication that a trans identity is something new is a very subtle form of colonialism, tends to be a little racist, and very much erasing cultures that already have this identity built into them. And so like, don't make the mistake of thinking that indigenous peoples are somehow, they beat us to this, like they've been, they've been there, they've done been new. We just took a while to get there. So what I was trying to get at was that though the idea of transness, of being trans, isn't new, how we define that is maybe a little bit different. Um, if you talk to somebody in the past who didn't have the word trans to describe themselves, they might not describe themselves that way. We don't know how they would identify it. And that's one of the things that makes talking about uh, queer history a little bit more difficult because you have to understand like the society that these people lived in how would they describe themselves if they had our vocabulary would they describe themselves with that vocabulary we don't know um a really great example of that that sort of gained some uh, traction in social media spheres is dr james barry uh, dr james barry was the first surgeon to perform a c-section where both the mother and the baby lived was a bit he was a big proponent of hand washing at a time when that was not the norm your gay ancestors want you to wash your hands. Thank you. Dr. James Barry was born as a woman. And upon his death, he said, like, don't do like, just put my body in the ground. Don't look at it. 
just put it in the ground. And of course, people didn't listen to him, which is why we know that Dr. James Barry was not born as what we would consider a biological man. This is what I mean. It gets like, like it's more complicated to talk about. You like have to start adding lots of words when you're talking about historical figures. So we don't know if Dr. James Barry would have identified as a trans man. We don't know if he would have identified as a gender fluid person. Uh, but we do know that how he referred to himself was he, that he wanted to be known as a man. And it, that's when it gets a little tricky. Like, how do we talk about him in the greater scheme of queer history? And like, part of me is just like, let's just make it easy. It's trans man, trans saint, Dr. St. James Barry. Let us have respect for medical professionals. But, um, and a lot of queer historians rightfully so are like, it's much more complicated than that. You cannot make it that easy. It's supposed to be hard. And that was a really big tangent. I was talking about history. Dr. James Barry is really cool. He had a poodle named Psyche. Anyway, this is the thing. Gender and sex are very complicated subjects. It is very easy to get lost on a tangent and then forget where you were because there is so much to talk about. I would think about making this a two-parter, but I don't want to. Because I, as much as, as we want, I want to separate the ideas of sex and gender in your minds, um, I know that it's very hard. Um, especially, again, in the U.S. I'm not sure if it's this way in other countries, other English-speaking countries, other countries that don't speak English, if that idea of sex and gender is conflated. It shouldn't be. They are different things. You know, let's just dive in. I, you can't talk about gender and gender theories without talking about Judith Butler. If you are a uh, person who has um, some knowledge of queer scholastic work, you have probably heard of Judith Butler. If you have read Judith Butler, I'm sorry. I say that sort of jokingly. Um, I have a lot of admiration for Judith Butler. She is an incredible, like, theorist. Uh, I think that her work is very important, has a lot of merit, but it is not very accessible. And she, to be fair, she's not like trying to be accessible. She's very much working from a place of academia. I believe she won an award for like the worst sentence written one year. I don't know if it was specifically academic papers or if it was just in general, which I think is kind of funny. But anyway, so Judith Butler came up with this theory called gender performativity. And what, what it boils down to is that gender, gender roles are a performance which is where you get the performativity part. See? See how that see how that works? See what they did there? But this performance is not so so this performance is important for how we act in the world. Like there are certain things, it's kind of like all the world's a stage and gender is your part. So if you are coded as male, you have specific actions that you have to do to be seen as male, to continue being seen as male. And you're not necessarily, you are doing that for yourself sometimes and you're doing it for an audience. Like there's, I feel like I'm not explaining this correctly because it's such a, when you read her work, read some of her work and you will understand the problem that I'm having. It feels like it should be a simple concept and then, but you start adding like all these layers to it and it's very complicated. But gender is basically, very, very simply, gender is a performance. We put this performance on for ourselves and for an audience. If there was no one to perform gender for, then maybe we wouldn't have gender. But that this performance is important for how society views us, for our place in society, there definitely felt like there should be a third thing there. But I think it's pretty, I mean, that's it. Like, it's it's how we view ourselves. It's how society views us. We perform gender because we have to, basically. If you don't perform gender, there are consequences. 
And it's also really hard to not perform gender because it's so ingrained into every, like it is, we are imbued with it. And she also um, talks about this idea that gender is a social construct, which we've kind of talked about, mentioned at the beginning. What that means is that each individual society decides what gender means, what each gender is supposed to do, how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to carry themselves and dress and behave, and what is expected of them. So kind of broadly speaking, we can see that, you know, feminine gender roles, feminine gender ideas, traits would be... um, being good with children, being soft, being caring, being caregivers. A lot of times there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into the idea of femininity, whereas masculine identities are often based around protection and aggression and stoicism. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, Like not crying, not showing emotion, being tough, being a hard ass, being a provider. And the thing is, when you have these identities and things happen that mean that you cannot enact a part of that identity, it's very jarring. Like you can see that with with men who are not the breadwinners of the family, that a lot of time you see all those stories like on Reddit or whatever that are like men not being able to handle their girlfriends or their wives making more money than they do. And like, first of all, that's that's a bunch of bullshit. But second of all, like that's something that society has like told them from day one. Like you are supposed to be the provider. If you are not a provider, you are not a man. And that dovetails into very interesting like observation about sexism, which is that if you like strip it down to its bare basics, men's greatest fear is being treated the way they treat women or being seen as a woman. When you hear stories about guys who are afraid of being hit on by gay men, when you strip it down, that story down to its bare essentials, it's they are afraid of being assaulted by gay men because this is one person that they maybe can't bite off, which means, and there's like, oh, oh man, there's just a lot of like gender theory that goes in that because their fear is of being penetrated because if you get penetrated, you're not a man and you're not like strong, you're not masculine, you're weak. So men's greatest fear is being treated the way they treat women down to its bare essentials. Obviously, there's like exceptions to this rule. But I think that you can see that in a lot of, in a lot of things. And and that's uh, a whole different discussion about masculinity, which we can have. But let's go, I'm just going to back it up. I'm just not going to go down that rabbit hole because I've already gone down like five. So the big takeaway here is that gender isn't ingrained into us. We are not born with a sense of gender. It is something that society tells us to do from day one that our parents tell us that our peers tell us that media tells us and if we don't if we don't stick to the script then there are consequences for that and sometimes the consequences are minor like you know guys getting called metrosexual it's not nice but i mean it's not great but it's not it's not getting killed and left on the side of the road bad which is a consequence of not conforming to gender roles so, like, th- I mean, th- there are very serious consequences for not not playing your part in the theater of gender. And I think that that is, is something to keep in mind when you, if ever you have, like, this recoil from, like, say, Billy Porter. Billy Porter wearing these fabulous dresses on the red carpet. If you have, like, a recoil from that, like, stop and examine that. Like, why why do you have an adverse reaction to that? Is it because you're seeing someone who is not who isn't performing their role correctly. And especially with like butch women, um, I feel like there's more forgiveness for men wearing women's clothes than women being butch and very 
deliberately not catering to a male gaze. And again, like, first of all, stop yourself. Why should they have to dress in something that you deem attractive? But also, like, recognize that part of the, that the part of you that is maybe not okay with that is not, it's not necessarily logical. It isn't logical. It is a part of you that's, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. It's like, that's just what you're trained to do. If any of you were raised in highly religious uh, households, then you might be able to like identify with that knee-jerk reaction. Um, Especially if you've had to like retrain yourself to not be like internally biphobic or homophobic or transphobic. Um, That is something that I personally deal with. Like sometimes I hear something about being bisexual and like my knee-jerk reaction is like a, oh, sinner. And then I have to stop and like rewind and say, nope, that's not correct. That is just conditioning. And keeping that in mind when you're confronted with people or concepts that upend gender norms is very important. Like I said, there's a lot we could talk about with gender. Um, we can definitely, there's definitely a lot to be said for like the second shift, the third shift, um, women being forced basically to take these caregiving roles after they have been at work. I saw a post recently that was about dads not knowing anything about their children. It was about, it was someone who worked at a cake decorating place and like the dads had to stop and be and call their wives and say like, hey, how old is our kid turning? Like, how do you spell our daughter's name? That is very indicative of gender roles. And it is also a pile of horseshit. Man, if you can't tell me when your children were born or how to spell their names, like you need to reevaluate your life. Honey, if your husband does that, like, Maybe it's time to throw out the whole damn man. Again, like, it's important. Like, men are not genetically predisposed to not remember information about their children. There's there's no, like, bullshit, like, hunting and gathering excuse. Like, oh, like, I was a hunter in the ancient days. So I, you know, don't have room in my brain to remember dates. No. Now, that ain't gonna fly anymore. It shouldn't have flown ever, but it's definitely not gonna fly now. Because... Hey, guess what? Like men and women are not biologically that different. So yeah. So a lot of things that are excused, like especially like that boys being boys thing, we are sort of told as a society, like, hey, this is there's this is this is the nature thing. It's not nature versus nurture. There's a biological imperative for men to be this way. And the more we learn about gender and sex and biology, the more we learn that that's not true. One of the things that Joan Roughgarden, who I mentioned earlier, talks about is the um, the falsehood, falsehood, that sounds very fancy, the idea of the promiscuous male and the, I believe she calls it the coy female, but the idea that men and males are very sexually active, they're just going to spread their sperm everywhere, and that females have to be um, much more coy and, like, selective about their mates because they only have the one egg is wrong. And when you start to, and see, that's why it's it's so interesting when when research into biological sex does not take for granted the idea that there are, there's a binary. When it says, what if we didn't, what if we didn't study this going and acting like we know that there's a binary? What if we just watched and saw what happened and then made observations from that? Which is what science should be doing. But when that idea starts to trickle into these more these more intangible concepts um because science like you can very much like go and observe it and you can see like this is how the animals behave but when we start talking about gender it's a little bit more by nature it's made to be hard to see and i really love that that performativity that judith butler said that because when you bring this idea of theater into it i mean it, it really works as a metaphor because you know the whole idea of a play 
is that it seems real, unless you're like watching Bertolt Brecht, but we're not talking about Brecht. We can. I love him, but we're not talking about him now. That, but the idea that the the underpinnings of the play, the the scene changes, the work that the actors did beforehand, like the line memorization, the costume changes, the lights, those things aren't supposed to necessarily draw your attention. Or maybe the lights are meant to draw your attention, but like the light operator is not supposed to draw your attention. And it's the same thing with gender. Like we are not supposed to see the societal, I can't think of the right word, the societal thrust behind that, 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 that society is directing this performance, that these are not organic choices that we all decided to make to, you know, wear makeup or to, to be aggressive and loud or to be like meek and try and take up as little space as possible. All of these things are are designed to seem natural, but they are not. They are learned traits. People want to think that sex and gender are natural and innate things, and they are so much more complicated than that, especially gender. There is nothing that genetically predisposes you, if you're a woman, to want to have kids more, to be kinder and softer and to not speak up. There's n there's nothing biological about that. That is all a societal construct. That is all conditioning and that is all like what you are taught. And that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, that's something that a lot of my friends, not a lot, like three of my friends have been coming to terms with is that, especially when you're being raised in a very traditional, especially Christian environment, uh, is that as a girl, you are strongly encouraged to not talk or to talk, but to like, you're not, not that much. That your opinions are like, you can state them, but they're not that important. That you're, you can have some authority, but not that much authority. And to basically be told that, you know, you don't have, we're not going to respect you. Like you can't have this position of authority because you are inferior. That's really damaging. And that is not something that is inherent in you. That is something that you are taught. So I know that was a lot to take in. The too long didn't read. Uh, gender and sex are not the same. Gender is something that society tells you to do. Biological sex is a lot more complicated than you think it is. But I hope that clarified some things for you, um, especially if you're straight and you're listening. Hopefully this allows you to have some more nuanced conversations with queer people that you know. And if you are queer and maybe didn't know this, hopefully that was enlightening. And if you're a baby gay, I'm so glad you're here. And hopefully that this allows you to feel a little bit more confident in who you are. These conversations don't happen a lot. Um, I feel like especially in America, we are very, we don't like talking about sex. We do, but we don't enjoy it. And that's, you know, you mean, and that's, again, that's not like a biological imperative. You can see when you look at our Puritan ancestors that like, yeah, it's very much a cultural thing. And in England, you can see that like, was reinforced with Queen Victoria. We have all these very weird societal rules that other countries don't have, or they do and they're just enacted differently. So yeah, gender and sex, two different things. Another really great resource is the Gender Bread Man. It is a uh, graphic slash poster thing. Very informative if you're more of a visual learner. I will provide links to some of the things that I've talked about in this podcast in case you want to watch something. Uh, I would highly recommend watching Joan Roughgarden's TED Talk. I mean, it's a TED Talk. It's not that long. You're not going to waste any time. What else are you doing? Today's music is Night Owl by Broke for Free. You can find more of their music at the Free Music Archive. All right, guys. You know the drill. Stay sane. Stay safe, wash your hands, practice social distancing, 
wear a mask, and stay curious.